A seat if you're a guest, welcome. My name is Byron. I get the honor to serve as the lead pastor. And if you are new, you are at the very beginning of a new study that we're doing through the book of Acts that we are calling the church. If you are new, you need to understand something about redemption. If you want to make redemption your home and you've been kind of thinking about coming to next steps and getting plugged in, there's one thing you need to know about us is that our primary way of preaching here at Redemption is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. It's what is called expository preaching. Turn to your neighbor and say expository. expository. Turn to your other neighbor and say preach. There we go. That's what we do. We do expository preaching, which means we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's not saying that we don't do topical series or maybe a standalone message here or there, but the bread and butter for us here at Redemption is that we pick a book, we live in the book, we study the book, we finish the book, and then we pick another book. That's the way that we do it. And we're starting in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter one, and Acts has 28 chapters, which means buckle up because we're going to be here for a while. But the, the big idea that we're studying the book of Acts is we want to talk about what God does when a church becomes a church. And so last week we were in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which means this week, if we finish last week, verse 11, what verse are we on this week? You guys are so smart. You got the hang of it already. And so today, open up with me to verse 12 for a sermon called, What Happens When the Church Prays? The reason that we do this as a church is a variety of reasons. The first reason we do it is because it really cuts down on sermon prep time for me. It's like, I don't have to figure out what I'm gonna preach because God's already put it right there for me. Uh, but another reason that we do it is because it helps the Bible come alive for you. It helps you learn how to read the Bible for itself because it's not just a verse here or there taken out of context and then whatever I think that verse means, you get to see the full story of God's redemptive plan play out and then you get to go home, read it, and apply it to your life. The second reason that we do it this way is because it allows you to hold me accountable for my preaching. Like if next week I skip ahead to chapter two and then you're gonna say, hey, pastor, you skipped a section of the scripture. Why did you skip a section? Are you not confident preaching it? Like, do you not believe God's word? Like, are you editing the message? It allows the congregation to hold me accountable to what I'm preaching. But number three, it helps you begin to see the normative Christian experience, which is why we're working through the book of Acts, because the idea is this, that if God's word says it, then we believe it, which means we need to live it out in our lives. And the theme idea that we're going to hold on to as we walk through the book of Acts is this, if God did it then, then he can do it now. Like when we study the book, it is the blueprint for the church. It's not just a history book. It is our legacy. It is the legacy as the church that we have received. And it is also the legacy as the church that we leave. It is not just the past. It is our present. It is our future. Because if God did it, then God can do it now. If God did it for them, God can do it for us. This is not just what happened. This is what happens when a church learns how to to be the church. And so as we study the book of Acts, you're gonna see God do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Does God still wanna do extraordinary things? Yeah, absolutely. Who does he use? Ordinary people just like you and me. 
God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary. We're going to see some fascinating things as we study the book of Acts. I mean, next in chapter two, we're going to see Pentecost fall and the Holy Spirit shows up. People speak in tongues. 3,000 people are baptized in a single day. We're going to see revival break out, cities be transformed. We're going to see missionaries sent out, leaders raised up. We're going to see the sick healed. We're going to see demons cast out. We're going to see the dead raised. We're going to see sermons being preached. We're going to see some amazing things through Acts. And here's what you got to hold on to. That, that was not just for them. That's also for us. Like, do we want to see people be saved? Yes. Do we want to see miracles happen? Yes. Do we want to see answers to prayers? Yes. Do we want to see people be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do we want to see people to ha have healings take place? Yes. Do you want to see lost people saved? 3,000 people be baptized in a say, single day, Lord Jesus, if you did it then, you can do it again. We pray for those things. And so we're going to see today how all of those things are made possible in Acts chapter one, because they're gonna do some amazing things. But before they do any of those things, it says they get together and they have a prayer meeting. And so what we're gonna look at today is what happens when a church prays. If you have your Bible in Acts chapter one, verse 12, let's read it. And I wanna make some observations to give you five reasons why the church prays. Here's what we see, verse 12. Then they, that's the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, very important, we're gonna talk about that, where they were staying. Peter gives the list of the names and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. And all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. What's the word? What were they devoted to? together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, before I apply this text, I have to set up the context because without the context, you won't understand the text. And so we need to explain it in the broader picture. What we see here in Acts chapter one is a continuation of what Jesus told them in verses one through 11. Here's what we see in verse four. It says, and while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to to wait until they've received the promise of the Father, speaking of the Holy Spirit. He said, you have heard from me that John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, the key verse to understanding all of the book of Acts is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here we are after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He evidences himself for 40 days hanging out with the disciples, giving them many proofs that he was the Messiah. At the end of the 40 days, the last words, the great commission Jesus gives, he says, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is the outline for the book of Acts. Jerusalem is the first section. Judea is the second section. Samaria is the second section. And then the final session is the ends of the world. Acts 28 ends. We as the church pick up Acts 29, still living out the message of the book of Acts still to this day. It is the key verse. You will receive power. And then right after that, Jesus ascends up into heaven. He just, boop, he's gone. And then all of a sudden the disciples are like, what do we do now? Guess what they did? They did what Jesus told them to do. <laughs> And they went back and they started 
pray. And they went to a specific place. They didn't just wander off and just pray in their own little corners. No, they went to a specific place as they got together and they prayed. Where did they go to? They went to the upper room. Now, when you read this, it may not mean anything to you. You're like the upper room. That's just another place in the Bible. I have no clue what that actually means. To us, it may not mean a whole lot that they went to the upper room, but to the disciples, that carried significance. Here's the reason why, because the upper room is a place of intimacy. The upper room for them is a place of proximity. The upper room was the last place they shared a meal with Jesus. The upper room is a very important place because that's where the last supper happened at. Like whenever Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you, you know where that happened? That was in the upper room. Do you remember the story of the woman with the alabaster jar? She broke her perfume and anointed the head and the feet of Jesus. That story took place in the upper room. It was the last place Jesus was at with his disciples before he went to the cross. It's where Judas determined to betray Jesus. It's where Jesus got down and washed the feet of the disciples. It's where Jesus says, I now call you my friends. It's in that upper room after the resurrection, Jesus appeared and Thomas said, I need to touch the hands and the feet. And he fell down and he said, my Lord and my God. The upper room is a place where Jesus prophesied his death, burial, resurrection and his second coming. You need to understand that these upper room moments carry great significance because the upper room is a place of intimacy. It is a place of proximity and prophecy. It is a place of preparation. It is a place of miracles, but most importantly, the upper room is a place of prayer. And I think one of the reasons why the church in America is struggling in the way that we are or declining in our attendance is because we have neglected the upper room. We have neglected the priority of prayer as a church. Like we have a lot of uh, programs, but we don't experience a lot of power because we have neglected the upper room. Today we have hype, but not the Holy Spirit because we have abandoned the upper room. Today we have abilities without anointing because we've abandoned the upper room. We have events without divine encounters because we have neglected the upper room. The church is busy, but not experiencing breakthroughs because we've neglected the upper room. We have marketing without miracles because the church has neglected the upper room. And I think for the church, the way forward is through the past to rediscover the purpose, the priority, and the necessity of these upper room moments because we will never experience the power of God unless we prioritize the presence of God in the church. It only happens when the church begins to pray. For the church to be effective, prayer cannot just be lip service. It's got to be a lifestyle. For the church to grow, prayer is not optional. It is essential. Prayer is not a luxury. Prayer is a necessity because prayer is the difference between the best that we can do and the best that God can do. Like a kite without wind, like a car without gas, and like a fish without water. A church that doesn't pray is impotent because without prayer, nothing is possible. But with prayer, anything is possible. A church that ain't praying is playing. The church needs to pray. If we want to experience the power of God, we must become a praying church. Like this is the story of redemption. 
Like Ashley and I, we planted redemption seven years ago. And for the first three years, we thought like the best thing we could do as a church was to market and to take out Facebook ads and to get new pop signs for the parking lot because then we could post pictures on our Instagram and that would really make want people to come to our church. And so we invested thousands of dollars in marketing and branding and advertising and logos and our church still wasn't growing. I mean, people would come in, but they wouldn't come back. And I was like, what's wrong? Right? We, we would see salvations here and there, but we weren't, we, we weren't seeing what I saw in the book of Acts. And I was frustrated and our church would get up to about 100 people and we'd drop back down. We'd get up to 100, we'd drop back down. And it was just kept like, it was just frustrating that we were just hitting against this wall. And one day I was praying and said, God, I don't, I don't know what to do. I was, I was praying, but I was really complaining. That's what a lot of us do when we pray, right? We're not, we're not, we're not praying, we're complaining, we're complaining, right? And so, and I was like, God, why is our church not growing. And he said, Byron, it's really simple. It's because your church doesn't pray. And I said, well, no, no, we pray. We pray before the sermon starts. We pray before we take communion and we pray when we huddle as a team. And he's like, that's not the same thing as, as, as praying for me to move. That's just asking me to bless what you've already decided you're going to do. You haven't spent time praying. Yes. Teach your church how to pray because this is what you can do Without prayer, imagine what I can do when you pray. And so we started what is now known today as the first Wednesday prayer meeting. It's our version of the upper room. And since we started the prayer meeting, I, I can show you a chart right here. The exponential growth of our church from August of 2019 to where we're at today. Last week, we had the largest non-holiday attendance in our church history, 623 people. from prayer meeting to today. And I'll tell you that growth, people can point to all different reasons why redemption is, is growing. They could, you know, but I can tell you that the reason our church has grown is not because of my preaching, it's not because of my intellect, it's not because of my amazing leadership skills. Ask the staff, it's not the reason why. They know that, right? And, and it's not because we have an incredible staff because we absolutely have a wonderful staff, but we're not that bright, we're not that smart, we don't got that much money. Like there's no reason other than the church has discovered that upper room. That redemption has prioritized what God does in that upper room because we have made the presence of God a priority of a church. And that is the reason that we are beginning to see the power of God. Jesus says, you will receive power. If the church wants to get the power to do what God has called them to do, the power only comes after prayer. People oftentimes, they want God to do something, but they're not gonna spend the time to seek and to ask and to believe for him to do that through the importance of prayer. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, but that only comes after we pray. I know every single one of you, you have things and people and dreams and desires that you want to see God do. I'm telling you, it happens when you pray. If you have people you want to see saved, it only happens after you pray. If you have needs that God can only meet, it happens after you pray. If we want to get into this new building, it only happens when the church prays. If if we want to see Southeast Texas experience revival, it doesn't come when we wish for it. It comes when we pray for it. And so if the church is going to be effective in ministry, it must rediscover the priority of the prayer room, of the upper room. And I don't know about you, when I think about redemption, I'm so thankful for what God has done over these last seven years. But I am expectant of what God is going to do over the next 10 
I'm grateful that I don't, we're not a church that talks about what God did when. We're a church that talks about what God's going to do next. And I love our past. I love where we're at, but I believe the best is yet to come. And if God can do this in three years of prayer, what can God do over the next decade when the church learns to pray together? And so what we're going to do is we're going to learn five reasons why the the church prayed. The first reason they prayed is they prayed obediently. Look what it says in verse 4. It says this. It says, When they returned to Jerusalem from Mount Olive, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, they had entered and they went up to the upper room and they prayed where they were staying. Verse four says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That word there, ordered, is very important. Here's what it shows us. It shows us that prayer is not a suggestion, but it is a command. That prayer is not a recommendation. It is a requirement for you to see what God wants to do in your life. And more importantly, it shows us that prayer is not a last resort, but rather it is a first response. How many of you, like me, you typically pray after you've messed something up? Anybody else? Like, Lord Jesus, help. Did you know you can pray help before you make a mistake? Like he'll help you before. He don't mind helping you after, but he will help you before too. As we get through the book of Acts, you're gonna see that they pray not as a last resort, but rather they pray as a first response. See, many of us, we view prayer like a fire extinguisher. Like in case of emergency, break glass and pray because everything else is on fire. But what would our lives look like if we learn to pray first instead of praying after? Sure, God can help you after, but I have to wonder if our lives would look any different, if our churches would look any different, if instead of saying, God, here's my plans, bless them, ask God, what are your plans so I can walk in your blessings? Totally different reality. And this is my biggest problem, not only as a Christian, but oftentimes as your pastor, is I'm a type A gunslinger personality. Like all I do is go, 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 and do, 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 do. Like my whole life is like, we got giants to slay and mountains to climb. We got demons to stomp. We got load your squirt guns. We're storming the gates of hell again. Let's go. Like that's, that's me, right? But what happens is I oftentimes have always thought that praying is like wasting time because God would rather us be working than waiting. Like I got stuff to do, God. Prayer just takes up too much time. Listen, you are never wasting time when you are waiting on God. What does Jesus tell him to do? He says, wait. Why do they need to wait? They need to wait so God can work. And what is God doing while we're waiting? He's doing a thousand things you're unaware of. He's working on you. He's working on their hearts. He's working on their situation. He's working on the circumstances, divinely orchestrating all of the events that are going on and taking place. God is probably doing a thousand things in your life and you might only be aware of two of them right now. And so while you are waiting, you are giving God room to work. You are never wasting time when you are waiting on God. And so he says, I got a lot of work for you to do, but the first thing I want you to do is to learn to wait, to learn to pray, and to learn to rest in my presence. I love what, I believe it's um, George Mueller. He said, I have so much to do today, I need to pray for two hours. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. So take time and make time to spend time with God in prayer. Number two, it says they prayed in unity. 
Verse 13, it gives us the list of all those who are in the upper room. I, I love this. It says, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, not that Judas, the other Judas. He later changed his name to Thaddeus because he didn't want to be confused for that guy, right? It's like, hey, what's your name? Judas. Ah, oh, I've heard about you. Not that, I'm the, just call me Thaddeus. Um, <laughs> And they were all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, typically what happens is when we read through a long list of names or genealogies, most of us, we just move on past it real fast and start reading the next section, right? Like some of you are already reading about Judas committing suicide, hanging himself, jumping off a cliff and his intestines spilling out on the ground. If you didn't read it yet, now you are, right? You're like, come back next week. It's gonna be a great sermon. But I love these lists of names because here's what I know is God wastes nothing and every name has a story and every story matters to God. Therefore, it should matter to us. So I want to take a moment. I want to just talk briefly about each one of these people because first we meet the list of the disciples. You see Peter, James, and John. This was Jesus' inner circle. I mean, he loved everybody, but these were the people he were closest with. And out of that, he was the closest with John. It says he's the one that Jesus loved. But Peter... Peter was the leader of the disciples. And so John and Peter, they're different. And the way they relate to Jesus is different. And then nobody ever hears about Bartholomew after this. His name's never mentioned again. But he was still equally important. He made the list. And what we see is that there's a diversity within the group of the disciples in which Jesus chose. So it talks about Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Now, Matthew, he was actually a tax collector. That means he betrayed the Jewish people, worked for the government, and stole money from them because that's what the government does, amen? <laughs> and so, so he was a tax collector. And then Simon the Zealot, he was an assassin who took a blood oath to murder tax collectors. Imagine that first small group with those guys, right? <laughs> right? But what I'm trying to show you is that, that there is a diversity in the church that is important for us to be who God's called us to be. That it was, not just, it was not just all the same people. There was an eclectic mix. The way they related and their relationship with Jesus was all different based upon their experiences. But then it doesn't just stop at the disciples. It says that the women were there. People always say, oh, the church is so patriarchal and misogynistic. Are you kidding me? The Bible is the most, is the most liberating book for women in all of recorded history. Jesus resurrects. And who's at the prayer meeting? The women. The ladies are gathered together, and these are the same ladies who actually funded and paid for the ministry of Jesus while he was on earth. I bet y'all didn't know that, right? Thought all he did was just pull coins out of a fish's mouth. No, he had a group of women who funded his ministry work. Look what it says here in Luke 8. And some of the women were with them that had been cured of evil spirits and various illnesses. So Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed them of diseases. The women were Mary, also called Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her. Joanna, whose husband was Chusa, uh, Herod's administrator, wealthy woman, Susanna, and many other women. How many women? Lots of them. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Do you see the diversity that's taking place? It's not only men and women and young and old, but now we see there's rich and there's poor. Now we see wealthy women and women who were in poverty. We see Jewish men and prostitutes all gather together in the very beginning of the early church. Do you see the diversity that's beginning to play out? And then it also says Mary, 
the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, some of you were raised Catholic, and so you were taught what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? That is extra biblical. It's unbiblical. It's not actually found in the Bible because the Bible actually tells us that Jesus had brothers. Now, they were half-brothers because Jesus is the son of God. Joseph was his stepfather, but he had half-brothers. In fact, the Bible even tells us their names in Mark chapter 6. It says that this is not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us as well. Not only did he have brothers, but he also had sisters but here's what John 7, 5 says. For not even his brothers believed in him. Three years Jesus was walking, doing ministry, and his own family rejected and did not believe in him. But now they're in the prayer meeting praying to him. What was the change? It's the resurrection. Listen, there's a lot of things that we, we may disagree on. There's a lot of backgrounds, experiences, preferences, events that we've all gone through. But whether you're your first time or whether you've been here for a long time, whether you're rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian, Democrat, Republican, the one thing that church is united around is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? It's the resurrection that unites us. It is the world that tries to divide us. The world we live in is built upon trying to divide people as much as they can. Dividing people based upon their ethnicity and their income. This is what woke ideology and identity politics, and this is, this is what our whole society is built off, is, is labeling people and segregating them into different units and departments so that way they find their identity from that. We do not find our identity from our labels. We find our identity from the resurrection of Jesus. And it's through that resurrection, the church has become the most diverse place of all the planet. That every tribe, tongue, nation across the world is praying and worshiping and serving Jesus Christ as their risen Lord, Savior, and their God and their King. Listen, God gives unity. Satan brings division. Anytime you see division at work, you know the devil's at work. But when you see a group of people who have nothing in common but the resurrection and the hope of Jesus Christ, the unity that God is bringing in that house, it unites us. Our diversity does not need to divide us. Our diversity is also what can be what unites us. And so that means as a church, when the devil has his way, here's what happens. You have people start dividing. Dividing over politics, dividing over preferences, dividing over carpet color, dividing over the temperature of the room, dividing over what's a name, a small group. You see division in the church. And when division is in the church, God cannot bring multiplication to a church. Like I know when a church is heading, is when people start complaining instead of praying. When people stop talking about the problems and they, and they, start talk, they stop talking about solutions, when people start gossiping instead of interceding and forgiving, the church is in trouble. Like if Satan could have got that early church to divide, could you imagine? None of us would be here today. If in that prayer meeting they got together and they're like, well, you're not like me and so I don't know if I can pray with you. Nothing else in the book of Acts would have happened. You and me would not be here because Satan knows if he can get us to divide on day one, he don't got to worry about us in chapter 21. Satan wants nothing more than to bring division into a church. And so as a church, we must radically pray for unity together in the church. 
to lay aside our preferences, to lay aside our denomination, to lay aside our upbringing and our affiliation, to lay aside our pride, to lay aside anything that divides so that way we could come together with one heart, one purpose, one mission, one focus, and that is to be his witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to be his witnesses to all the world, to be his worshipers and his witnesses. We lay everything else aside for the cause of Christ. We are united. Number three, it says they prayed congregationally. It gives us the list of names, but it says here that all these were in one accord. Now, I know I've already taught this section, but there's one more thing that I want to add. It says they were all together, and when they came together to pray, they did not go to their own little corner and get out their journal Bible and Instagram their quiet time with Jesus and post it on social media so people could see how devoted they were. That's not what they did. See, many times people struggle with corporate prayer, especially our first Wednesday prayer meeting, because here's what they think. I was told to have my quiet time. And so that's what's most important. Jesus said it like this. When you pray, pray in secret. Not like those hypocrites who like to be heard for their many words, but go in secret where your father can hear you. And so you're like, well, it's just me and my prayer closet. That's great. But you need to understand that there is a difference between a prayer closet and an upper room moment. What God does in the prayer closet is different than what God does in the upper room. Now, you need both. It's not either or. It's both and. You need both. You need a personal relationship and you need a family. I'm a dad. Any dads in the room? Thank you, dads. Made the best decision leading your family in the church. Thank you to all the men in the room. Grateful for you. I have two girls, Esther and Ruth. Esther is six, Ruth is three. They're completely different. And I've learned that the older they get, the more intentional time they need with me as their dad. More one-on-one time with me. Like when they were little, I would just lay them on the ground. They just roll over and let mom handle it. But as they get older, they need one-on-one time with their daddy. And they like different things. Esther loves Barbie. Ruth loves Paw Patrol. Okay, and so... So when I get down and I play with them, I need to tailor their time with their individual needs. I know what their favorite ice cream is. I know what their favorite food is. I know where their favorite restaurants are. I know what their favorite colors are. And so I spend time individually with each child. It's very, very important. But you know, it's also equally important family time. Research has showed that couples or families rather who eat four times a week at a dinner table the children grow up more likely to go to college, make better grades for their school, less likely to develop eating disorders or depression, drug addiction, lower rates of teen pregnancy, all of these things. Why? Simply because of family time, right? It's important to have one-on-one time, but it's equally important to have family time. Now, if that's true for us individually, then what does that also mean for us spiritually? Yes, God loves to meet with you in your quiet time, but he does something spiritually special when the family comes together and meets with him in the upper room. We need to recapture congregational prayer as a church. It's not just you and Jesus. There's a whole lot of other people who call redemption home. And so we gather together in prayer. I know it's trite, and, and, but I also know that's true. Listen, guys, the church that prays together stays together. Like we want to see God do something amazing. It can't just be you and Jesus. It's got to be all of us pursuing Jesus together. The church that prays together stays together. It's a dynamic move of God. I think churches all across America are actually rediscovering this. 
Because I know we're not the only church that is having powerful moves of God in our prayer meetings, in our first Wednesday prayer nights. And I think many people are rediscovering the priority of a prayer meeting. Let me give you five reasons why from my own experience. Number one, encouragement. How many of you struggle with prayer? You're like, oh, another sermon on prayer. I feel guilty. Anybody? Anybody? You're like, I, I want to pray. I just struggle with it. It's okay. It's church. You could raise your hand for the altar call later because you lied. Um, <laughs> but here's, when you pray in a room together, it encourages you. I'm like, I get around somebody else praying. I, I feel the courage. You know what the word encourage means? Literally means to put courage in somebody else. And so when you pray next to someone else, it makes you feel a little bit more confident about your own prayers as well. And so it encourages you to develop that discipline. Number two, miracles happen. I can't explain it, but at our first Wednesday prayer meetings, we see the miraculous on a regular basis. We've seen people healed. We've seen miracles take place. I've seen grown men in the altar just bawling their eyes out, which is a miracle in itself. We see God, and I don't know why it happens, but I think some of the reasons is because there's no agenda on a first Wednesday prayer meeting except for to touch the throne of heaven. That's it. There, there's, there's no time limit. Like, if you gotta go, you gotta go. Um, so, but, but we're gonna stay here and keep praying longer than that. There's no time limit set on a first Wednesday. There's no order of service that is set. Like, when God moves, we give space and room for him to move. And he has a lot more freedom on a first Wednesday than he has on a Sunday, because on Sundays, we have four services in 75 minutes. So at a first Wednesday, we're just like, God, have your way. And he does. It's amazing. Number three, vision happens. Like we're not just aimlessly wandering around, praying for whatever just pops in our mind, but there's always targeted prayer points that we pray for because there is a need that the church has and we're praying and believing that God is gonna meet the needs when the church prays. And so like, what are they praying for here? They're praying to receive the power God promised them. And so they're praying and praying and praying and praying. They have a prayer point. They have an agenda that they're praying for. They have a target that they're reaching for. And they're praying for power. And what does God do? God answers that prayer. Whenever we pray on our first Wednesdays, we're praying for specific needs that happen. There's a vision. Number four, there's renewal. Like whenever I'm so tired and I'm like, man, I got to preach on first Wednesday and now we got to pray. Oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. I don't really feel like going. Those days that I don't want to go are the days when God shows up in my life the most. Amen. Right? I, I can't explain it. I'll come to church completely empty. After a first Wednesday prayer night, I leave full. Right? My Thursdays after Wednesdays are better than my Thursdays without the Wednesdays. I, I can't explain it. But there's a refueling. There's a refreshing. There's a renewal that happens. It gives me the strength to be able to persevere. It gives me the hope to keep believing. It gives me faith. And so I feel refreshed. And then lastly, testimonies. Like my favorite thing at First Wednesdays is just hearing testimonies of what God has done. Every first Wednesday, we open up with prayer. We have these prayer cards. What I would ask you to do for, for right now, if you just want to pull out one of those prayer cards in your seat back and you want to just start, you want to write a prayer request or a praise report down, our church categorizes these, keeps them in an Excel spreadsheet, and we pray over them as a staff. And when God answers those prayers, we itemize them, pull them up, and then we share the testimonies. I've shared testimony after testimony on first Wednesday nights, a financial breakthrough, like one person prayed in December for a car, and then the next week somebody straight up gave her a car. Like that has happened in our church. Like we've seen it happen over healings. My favorite moment was when taking communion uh, in January, I, I felt like a, a word of knowledge came to me and I said, somebody was just healed as they took communion. And a woman was sitting right there. She raised her hand and said, I'm healed. God healed me. 
And we're like, all right, come up here and share. And she felt the warmth. It's like God touched her back. And I gave a word that says there is a, a bulging disc uh, in, in your or a spine problem. And she screamed out, she's healed, came forward, warmth all through her back. In an instant, God healed her, took all of the pain away. She shared her testimony, applause broke out. And that gave faith from other people to come for the altars and receive prayer for whatever their need was. Like testimonies are, are a power. The word testimony is to inspire other people to believe that God can do the same thing for somebody else. It's like God's story in you inspires me to believe God's story for what I'm praying for as well. I love to see it. Listen, here's why First Wednesdays are so important to me because the prayer meeting is the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. Right, what, is a, what does a thermostat do? A thermostat sets the temperature. A thermometer tells the temperature. A thermostat is what sets the temperature. If we want the temperature of redemption to be burning hot, we got to set the temperature at the prayer meeting. Because as the prayer meeting goes, so goes the church. And when the church is red hot and everybody's gathered together and praying and believing and inspired, when everybody's filled with the Spirit, it overflows from our prayers into every other ministry that happens. Without the prayer night, there is no small group, there is no serve team, there is no power on a Sunday morning or effectiveness when it comes to our outreach and missions. Like if we want the church to have power, the church has got to prioritize prayer. It sets the temperature for the rest of the church. As the prayer meeting goes, so goes the rest of the church. And a church that ain't praying is a church that's playing. We got to rediscover the power, the presence, the importance of these upper room moments. Which leads to number four, that they prayed consistently. It says this, that they were devoting themselves to prayer. That word devoted means constant, continual, ongoing, without ceasing. For the early church, prayer was not a hobby, it was a habit. It was not something they just found time to do. It was something that they made time to do. It was ongoing. Like they didn't just pray, they pray prayed. <laughs> like, you know, there's a difference between praying and praying, right? There's a, a difference between the two. They didn't just pray, they pray, prayed. And that's God's dream for the church. Like when we read the book of Acts, you're gonna see crazy things. And it all started with a prayer meeting. It all starts with a prayer meeting. The one thing that continually sustains the church for the next 28 chapters is they prayed. I think one of the reasons that the churches today don't line up with the book of Acts is because we don't pray with the level of consistency that they prayed with. Sure, we pray, but we don't pray, pray. We pray before our sermon. We, we pray as we take communion. We, we pray before small group. We pray before we eat at next steps. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, who eats the fastest, eats the most. But we don't pray. We don't have time set aside, designated for prayer. Here's what we do. We pray and we walk away. We come to the altar and we lay it down and we pick it up before service is over. When was the last time when you were praying for the lost? That you, that, that you use tears to do so? When was the last time you didn't say, Lord Jesus, bless them, but you got down on your knees, you skipped a meal, you fasted on Fridays, you interceded, you pleaded the blood, you, 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 you cried out, God, if you don't show up, it's not gonna happen! When was the last time you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you didn't get up until God answered you? 
When was the last time you prayed like we see with consistency in the church? Acts chapter one, the context sets up Jesus with them for 40 days. And then God answered the prayer on Pentecost chapter two, verse one. The word penta means 550, 50 days after Passover. Pentecost is a festival of 50 days after Passover. So Jesus dies on Passover. The spirit falls on Pentecost. He evidenced himself for 40 days. How many days does that mean they prayed? 10 days, 10 day prayer meeting. Why did they pray that long? Because God told them to. They prayed and they prayed. Well, what would have happened if they would have given up on day one? What if they would have prayed like some of our other friends who they say, well, you know, if it's God's will, it's always gonna happen. No point in actually praying about it. That theology is devastating to a person's prayer life. Well, if it's God's will, I guess it is, you know, no, it says like God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We gotta pray for God's will to be done. Right? What would happen if they prayed and they say, well, I prayed about it. I guess I don't got to worry about it now. I'm just gonna, God's gonna, got it from here. No, no, no. The Bible says that we are to pray like the persistent widow who kept knocking on the door until the judge answered and said, give this woman whatever she wants. She's getting my nerves. <laughs> we pray and we pray and we pray. Many of us, we pray on day one and we don't keep praying so we don't see answers on day 10. What if they would have stopped praying at day two? I guess it's not God's will. What if they would have stopped praying at day three? Nothing's gonna happen. Day four, day five, day six. What if they would have stopped praying on day nine, just one day away from the miracle, but they stopped praying? Listen, some of you, I want you to understand something, that, that if God says no, then you stop praying. But unless God says no, then it's disobedient for you to quit praying. Like if God's given a dream or a burden inside of you and you're not praying for it, you're being disobedient to God. But if you're praying for something that God's told you to stop praying for, then you're being disobedient to God. But listen, don't say no for God. Let God say no for himself. Listen, it's our job to pray. It's God's job to answer. People are like, well, I prayed and it didn't happen. Are you still praying? Because it could still happen. Right, people say, what if it doesn't? What if it does? It's, a, it's all a mindset of prayer. Like, it's not our job to answer or to figure everything out. Like, as a pastor, I don't know why some prayers get answered and other prayers don't get answered. As your pastor, I don't know why some people get healed and other people don't. I don't know why some speak in tongues and others don't. I don't know why some of you could sneeze and 20 people get saved and others of you, you've been praying for 30 years and your prodigal son is still not in church. Like, I don't get paid enough to answer that. It's not my job to answer. It's God's job. It's my job to pray. And here's what I've discovered. The more people I pray for, the more answers to prayer I see. I could pray for 100 people to be healed. One gets healed. That's one more than if I never prayed for anybody. It's all about your perspective on prayer. Whether you believe God will or you believe God won't, either way, you're right. It's not our job to answer the prayers. That's God's job. You pray, let God figure it out. You pray, you let God worry about it. You do what you can do and believe and trust that God is gonna do what he said he was gonna do. It's our job to pray. My friends, it's God's job to answer. And so if God hasn't told us to stop praying, we need to keep praying. And then we don't see the answer. We keep praying, we keep praying, we keep praying, we keep praying, we keep praying because Acts chapter two, when the the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit fell. 
Don't give up on day nine. Keep praying until day 10. Because the answer could be on its way. As a church, we got to keep praying. And then lastly, number five, we got to pray with expectancy. It says they prayed expectantly. Look what it says in verse four. And while they were staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. As Christians, why do we believe that God can, will, and does answer prayer? Why? Because he said he would. And God is faithful, always faithful, to fulfill his promises. God said he would send the Holy Spirit. And so we are to pray for the Spirit. We are to pray prayers as a church that are so motivating, so captivating. Pray prayers that are so bold that if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. Like if you can do it on your own, it's not a prayer. It's offensive to God. So many people are wishing instead of praying. Wanting God to do something without praying that God would do it. We need to, as a church, capture this heart of prayer, this radical understanding that God loves to answer and move and and, and respond to prayer. I want to be a church that prays for things and sees things that only God can get the credit for. I want to pray some big prayers, some bold prayers. I want to pray some prayers that make the angels nervous. I want to pray prayers that catch heaven's attention. I want to pray prayers that put God's reputation on the line. I want to pray some crazy prayers. I want to pray prayers that take faith because it is faith that moves the hand of God. It's been three years since our first Wednesday prayer meeting. It's our own version of the upper room. And here's the biggest lesson that I've learned is that a church is only limited by the size of its prayers. With prayer, anything is possible. Without prayer, nothing. Whether you believe God can or you believe he can, either way you're right. Prayer is the difference between what we can accomplish versus what God can do. So I want to be a part of a church that prays. Jesus said, my house will be a house of what? Of prayer. God, unless he does it, it's not going to happen. I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on my own. There's not enough money. There's not enough marketing. There's not enough programs. There's not enough talent in this room to accomplish what God can do when he moves. As a church, this is the one thing that separates us from organizations, from clubs, from, from, from anything else in this world. What separates us is that, is that God moves in the hearts and the lives of his people through prayer. Our church is limited by the size of its prayers. Like last week, I challenged you, raise your hand if you want to, if you, if you have somebody you do not know, that you know that does not love Jesus. Everybody in this room had their hand raised. How are you going to reach them? You're not smart enough. You're not winsome enough. You can't explain enough theology to answer all the questions. And you're not a good enough with, with your psychology to diagnose their inner healings and traumas that they've walked through. Like, like on our own, all we can do is say, here's who Jesus is. And it was what Jesus did in my life. And I, I believe he could do it in yours. That's not very winsome, is it? But you know what makes the difference in that invitation? The Spirit of God moving from your lips to their ears and opening their hearts so they can receive the gospel. No man can open another man's heart. Only God can do that. 
And that comes when we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. Guys, we cannot do any of this. And I'll be frank, as a pastor, I do not want to do any of this by myself. I want God to go before us. I'm tired of asking God, here's my plans, will you bless them? I wanna say, God, what are your plans so I can walk in your blessings? It's the difference between what we can do and what God can do. Prayer makes all the difference.